What's happening, you beautiful bastards? My name is Austin with Block Bites, and we have got one awesome show for you today. So Liz Warren continues her campaign against Bitcoin. We've got some really interesting things happening with Bitcoin dominance. We've got the Arbitrum Foundation with weak, weak paper hands just dumping tokens. Eh, sort of. We'll get into it. And then we've got OPEC, boys out in the Middle East, putting the squeeze on energy in the United States. It's a big show. It's going to have big implications for the U.S. dollar. Mikey, take us in, brother. Good morning. Good morning, Corval. I am like, I'm just so intimidated by you right now, dude, with that thing. I don't even know what to do with myself. The karate Clay's game. Got, Clay's got stars. So like, you're like super intimidating and, and Clay's like a unicorn going over a rainbow right now or something <laughs> like that. That's kind of how I see it. Clay's What's happening, boys? Stars. Not much, dude. I'm in this haunted village. Check it out. I got a bonfire. That looks like, uh, it looks like, uh, Am not Amityville. What am I thinking of? Uh, Salem. It looks like Salem when they were burning the witches. That's what oh yeah, thinking. dude. It's a lot like that. <laughs> Clay, you feeling better? Feeling better, buddy. Doing good. Rough weekend, huh? I honestly no. I I I was sick this weekend. I rested and I am back. Back with a vengeance. Looking recharged, bro. Let's go. go. Let's Nap go. Crypto Bean, welcome. Farmer Massey, welcome. Synthwave Symphony, Mister Clean. Love you guys. Profit loser. Thanks for always tuning in. Hey, do me a favor. If you uh, do me a favor, like the video, subscribe to the channel. We're going to get into some shit. Where should we start today? I think, I think we should start with this. Like she came down off of her broom and out of her tower, uh, the wicked witch of the West here. Why don't we listen to this video? Because I'll tell you what, this is probably one of the most bullish cases for Bitcoin right now is they cannot keep it out of their mouth. Like she just continues to rail against it. And it's freaking awesome so let's watch this for a second and we'll get into the show with bitcoin there's no thing that backs it up and and that's what makes it different it's just belief you and i mm. assess you assess the value is going to go down i assess it's going to go up and therefore i buy so it's no so it's more like this artwork no, no. because at the end of the day i can hang that thing on my wall right and i can enjoy it <laughs> or can i can it. throw darts at it um, you could sell it for money. Sure you can. I yeah. mean, there are features about it that are the same, but it's it's not the same. And look, one of the things we have to remember about, there are a lot of things that come within this crypto world. So for example, we could be talking about, instead of Bitcoin, we could be talking about digital currency. Now that's something very different. I think that's different too. I buy that. I accept that. That's different. right, because yeah. that's a government-backed mm -hmm um uh electronic transfer set the stage and Liz. it can be denominated in dollars it could be denominated in euros it could be denominated in some new language that's made up but huh. that has something hmm. that backs it up it has a government that says if at the end of the day there's a run on this stuff everybody wants theirs out the united states government promises there will be something to back it up so for millennia what if it's nominated in in computing power? That'd be kind of crazy. Well, so all right, so so she's making she's she's basically describing fiat money here in a really mm -hmm. interesting way. But she she's missing one thing fundamentally, and and I'm going to give her a pass because she's been in government for a long time, right? 
the thing that gives money value is not government. Maybe it is partially, right? But the thing that gives money value is that the people agree that it has value. Now, whether they're agreeing because the government says we're backing it up or whether they agree because it has distributed worldwide computing power is, is a whole nother story. But she's falling under this belief, this, you know, whatever, that government is the only thing that can give money value, right? And, and the truth of the matter is people give money value. And that's kind of the, you know, we've got this whole fallacy going on right now. People forget that, that government works for us and we vote them in and we vote them out. Right. And they've, they've carved these lines and they've, it's strange because it's almost gotten to the point to where it used to be, you know, you think differently than me. Cool. Let's sit down. Let's have a beer. Let's talk about it. But it's gotten to the point to where if you think differently than me, my people say you're an enemy of me and I have a right to to treat you in a way that I wouldn't have had that right 20 years ago. It's a really interesting world that we're living in. But side note on that, the fact that she cannot shut up about Bitcoin is uber, uber, uber bullish. Uber yep. bullish. All right. Yeah. So let's, well, let's I like John go ahead, point here. They've also sold BTC, right? Did you guys see that tweet where someone pointed out there, they sold BTC on Coinbase. Like a, <laughs> they sold an asset that they view is like a like possibly illegal on a, platform that they're actively litigating against it was great it was great they should have somebody had a great take we should have you know coinbase should have held their money uh mm -hmm. until until they right. got some, some clarity i saw that. justin sun come out and say publicly he'd like to otc some of the bitcoin that the government yeah. is trying to sell <laughs> and another great tweet asking if the government pays short-term property or short-term capital gain <laughs> against the bitcoin that they sell very uh, interesting the answer is no but yeah both both were fantastic so I want to I want to show you guys this chart real quick again BTC dominance chart very very important chart but as of today you see those little T's that are above that that uh, and this is a great this is a new indicator that I got over the weekend it's called Alpha Trend it's freaking awesome those little trees uh, T's right right above resistance there those are topping signals and it, it continues to hit now the green dots indicate that we're still in a bullish trend which we clearly are and so does this uh, but it bodes very well for a potential reversal in bitcoin dominance and i think what we want to start looking at here is this chart uh, and this is the eth btc chart because this is going to be the boy that that kind of leads the charge if we get it so who knows where we're at there however we had a lot of chatter over the weekend about some stuff that was going on with opec uh, and i assume you guys dug into this a little bit so that opec is the oil producing Eastern countries, I believe what it is. And it, it's made up of a whole bunch of uh, oil producing countries like uh, Iraq is in there and Bahrain is in there and United Arab Emirates is in there and Saudi Arabia. And Venezuela traditionally, what's Sorry, that? I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it also includes a lot of Latin American countries. It's not just <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's the organization of petroleum exporting countries. Exporting. Yeah. Thank you. See, that yeah. shows you how much research I did. Yes. But anyhow, my, my point being this, most of these guys were allies uh, to us. And I guess if it's all right with you guys, can we start on this topic and then just yeah. kind of wiggle our way through? Okay, so I want to I want to take us back. We'll go back about three years um, and we'll go back to the election that happened in 2020. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was a platform that Biden was running on uh, and it was essentially to, for lack of a better term, cripple our domestic energy production right and now cripple is not really the word but but a big part of his base 
uh, was anti-fracking. And then he, he, you know, he came out and said, you know, I most certainly will not get rid of fracking. And then the, like the day after he was elected, he got rid of fracking, which is a, a way of pulling oil out of the ground. Right. And so the U S has something called their strategic petroleum reserves, uh, SPR. And so these are essentially reserves that we keep in the background to have a little bit of control over the price of oil, the price of energy, the price of gas. We deploy them if needed at particular times, but we are very, very heavily uh, dependent upon these OPEC countries to produce the oil that we need, right? And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years, we had the midterm elections uh, in 2022. And uh, inflation was running out of control. And the place that people were feeling that really the most for a lot of people, because it was right in their face, is at the gas pump, right? Because gas, it, it's not a luxury. You've got to have it to get to work. You've got to have it to do shit. And so what Biden and the White House did is they started, uh, good point, no horns, no tell. Uh, they start deploying these strategic petroleum reserves and keeping the price of gas low leading into the election. But what they did is they put us into a very interesting jackpot in that we have not replenished our strategic petroleum reserves, which puts us at the point to where we have to import this stuff from these oil producing countries. All right. So there was some uh, chatter that Saudi Arabia got a little bit pissed off with the United States because what was happening is as we were deploying our strategic petroleum reserves, the SPRs, we were not purchasing uh, as much from these oil producing countries. So if the, the purchasing is drying up, what happens is it brings the price down. And so there was kind of like a, a handshake agreement that, hey, we're going to go ahead and, and replenish the SPR later on. Uh, we're just kind of doing this now for the elections type of thing. And that was a promise that was not kept by the Biden White House. And so you've got Saudi Arabia and, and a bunch of other countries that came out just two days ago, maybe. And they are voluntarily cutting oil production by close to a million barrels a day. So Saudi Arabia, UAE, Kuwait, Iraq, Oman, and Algeria have cut oil production. Now, this puts us in a really interesting place because in the United States, bye, Clay. I don't know what happened. Uh, in the United States, right, we are fighting inflation and energy prices make up a large portion of that basket. Something like 6% of the CPI basket is made up uh, by energy. So if they're tightening over here, it might make things tight at home and we don't have the SPR available to have a say in it. So this is kind of interesting yeah. the way that this all went down. So how I'm seeing this is that, like you said, we deployed a lot of our reserves, increasing supply substantially, driving down demand um, for OPEX oil, right? So it seems like it would make sense that they would want to recoup their losses by cutting down the amount of oil they're producing to jack prices back up to kind of maintain some kind of price stability for themselves. Uh -huh. But I think it's like an interesting perspective to look at it. I love the geopolitical perspective, but it's like more of like a trend more towards like American isolationism almost. Not quite. It, it would be more of a trend towards isolationism, I suppose, if we re-engaged fracking, which also I wanted to point out. I'm Mr. Know-it-all here, but fracking is just the process of like injecting. It's crazy. I would, I just read Pump water, right? This. Into yeah, the ground they, or something? Apparently, we're one of like the only countries, maybe the only country that has like the ability to do this, like the engineering know-how and like also the equipment. 
um and like i guess the knowledge of the reserves but they just like shoot high powered water to like fuck up like rock you go like down at an angle so it's like really complicated and then you just suck up it's either natural gas or oil so it could be either but primarily we care about the oil um but yeah, if we were to re-engage fracking, because we have a uh, massive, massive, massive untapped oil reserves, so we wouldn't really need to be dependent on OPEC at all if we were to fully engage fracking. Uh, but of course, there's the environmental concerns at home. Well, and then you've got, so Russia is a massive exporter of energy. I mean, mm -hmm. we know that. And going into this, they all, they put these sanctions on Russia. Uh, you know, you had your G7 countries along with Europe and the allies saying, okay, we're going to cap Russian oil at $60 a barrel, right? So any, any Russian oil that's sold for more than $60 a barrel, we all agree not to let those ships in, you know, all sorts of different stuff that they're trying to do as part of their sanctions against Russia. And I think, you know, if I were just looking at it from the perspective that I'm looking at, which is very minor, but, you know, looking at this, we we're, we're at war in Ukraine. I mean, you, you can say it any way that you want it, but that's our war. Uh, and, you know, we kind of made the assumption that, okay, we've got all these other countries to rely upon to import and to produce. And they're pulling back on this. So let, let me jump in on a few things here. One, I am about 30 seconds away from abandoning Spectrum. If my, <laughs> if my internet goes out one more time, I'm going to take Spectrum down personally. That's the oh first thing. God. Two. Uh, two, we need to separate fracking from TAPS, which, uh, which is the transatlantic pipeline system in Alaska, which is where we get our oil from Alaska, which by the way, has as much oil as pretty much any nation in the world, which is we've gotten away from utilizing it, uh, as the Biden administration took, you know, took hold of the presidency. So we got away from TAPS. We, uh, we shut down whatever, you know, oil production and, and permits effectively that were going on with the TAPS pipeline. So that created a scenario, and I'm going to present my screen and, and fingers crossed that uh, that it. my Wi-Fi stays on. Uh, but effectively, what became of us going into our strategic uh, oil reserves, and let me make this a little bit larger, was that we are now seeing historic lows in U.S. Cr crude on hand, uh, dating back 10 years to the lowest point that it's been uh, in sort of the history of the United States. So thus, we have major issues in terms of, you know, on-hand strategic oil reserves. Uh, and then going back a little further for some context. So um, in 2018, there was a Saudi, there was a journalist, a U.S.-based journalist um, of a Saudi descent named Jamal, I'm going to butcher the last name, but Kashhagi, I believe was his last name. Kashoggi. Yes, thank you. Yeah. And uh, basically he was, uh, you know, he was, murdered effectively by uh, rebels in Yemen uh, that obviously created rifts between, um, you know, the United States and Saudi Arabia. And, um, you know, President, President Biden kind of vowed to make him a pariah, uh, his killing, you know, at, because he was killed, uh, he was kind of vowed to make as a pariah as, you know, and prices of oil were, were rising. And as he got inaugurated, he backed off that because he wanted good relations between Saudi Arabia and the United States, uh, particularly, you know, with the war in Ukraine kicking off, it created even more sort of animosity and need for OPEC, which is uh, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, and Venezuela, but it's really led by Saudi Arabia. Like that's the main country of the OPEC countries. And so a lot of backstory there, but it's important because 
you know, this week the Saudi energy ministry came out and said it's going to reduce uh, its oil per day by 500,000 in coordination with other OPEC countries who were not named. But that's a, you know, that's a huge deal. So that's basically 5% of the average production per day of Saudi Arabia uh, being those 500,000 oil uh, barrels per day. And so, you know, tie all that together and we've got ourselves a very interesting conundrum uh, on the hands of the United States. And so I don't know how helpful that context was, but I don't know if it was already said because I froze, but that's kind of where we are right now. Uh, and that's that's what we're seeing. So historically low, low oil reserves and now a massive reduction in oil per day from OPEC. Yeah, I don't think it's like super cataclysmic or anything. I feel like this happens pretty regularly. I mean, we see this 10-year chart. It's like looks really bad. But I feel like every like five years or something, we hear about OPEC doing some kind of crazy fuckery to the oil reserves and everyone gets really mad. But it's well, just classic tit for tat back and forth. Like we're not really uh, – Austin said we're like technically allies with Saudi Arabia, but the relationship is like far from like positive. Like right. it's like Saudi Arabia and Israel, which hate each other. They're like on our same team, technically, you know, and it's more of like a marriage of what do you call that opportunity against Iran? I was thinking about this last night. I was like, Iran is close to Russia and China. It's like the Saudi Arabia is not really friends with anybody. <laughs> well, this is interesting, though. I mean, so, you know, uh, Mark over here asked, why is OPEC decreasing oil production on its face? They generally decrease oil production due to decreased demand, right? And especially like, here's a, I'm going to throw my screen up here for a second. The leading into uh, summer. Well, really so, right. So they're, they're worried about demand and disinflation, right? Is what TED Talks Macro says, which makes sense um, from, from that perspective. However, you've also got Riyadh meeting with Moscow on a regular basis. And you've right. got Riyadh meeting with Beijing on a regular basis and you've got them being very friendly with the countries right big energy countries uh but that would be viewed right now as you know enemies of the united states and so the conspiracy theorist in me says okay we've got the u.s deploying all this shit over in ukraine to try and fight this battle here we've got huge inflation at home that they're trying to fight we've got energy making up a big part big part of that you got biden that kicked the spr out to win some votes and now we have them by the balls, right? So the conspiracy theorist in me says they did this to screw the U.S. Now, whether or not that's true could ever be proven, who the hell knows? But the timing is very curious in the, yeah. way, that it, in the way that it went down. Yeah, I mean, so to say that, that it's not strategic, I think, is, is somewhat impossible. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia is not part of the BRICS nation, but we're seeing... BRICS nations, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa make waves right now. And obviously China's relationship, which is now growing with Russia, uh, is a precarious one for the United States and puts, you know, puts, puts all of this into an interesting position where you have to go, hmm, this is, you know, the number one, the number one thing that is, um, that is really fueling Russia's ability to fight this war is, is both oil production and oil sales. So they're, they're, them being able to turn a profit against a more expensive um, barrel of oil that they're going to be able to sell. And so, you know, all of this plays, plays sort of hand in hand into that if you think about the way that Russia is financing this war. Now, now of course, no one's going, not, you know, no party is going to publicly come out and say, this is the reason that we would do such a thing. But it is a slap in the face of the United States in terms of what what does the U.S. do now, given that we're at the lowest strategic you know, petroleum oil reserves in history 
and that we need to go out and buy oil now, you know, potentially at a much, much higher cost. And mm -hmm. so, you know, Corval said a moment ago, I don't think that this is as big of a deal as it maybe seems. And, you know, in most cases, I would say you're right. But in this case, we are in a war against inflation. And when you talk about the cost of oil or the cost of energy prices in, in comparison to inflation, it is actually a huge deal. Uh, and, you know, if you think about the CPI, so the consumer price index, so basically the CPI for household energy is really a compo component of, of fuels and utilities. It's an index, right? So, uh, you know, of which, um, you know, in the housing category of the CPI, energy is a huge piece of that number. And so if our energy prices rise, and we're going to see CPI have a, you know, a potentially negative impact, uh, you know, there within. And so here's what I would point to as, as kind of proof and point to what I just said. And so if we see a massive spike in gasoline prices and you follow this dotted blue curve, cumulative impact of gas price shocks. So look at, look at this year, right? So when we really started to see inflation go to uh, actual inflation rates go to, to record highs, all these spikes in energy prices have been correlated with also demand spikes in, in, in CPI rates. And so they don't have months on here, but I would guess this was probably, uh, you, know, you know, early, early like Feb. And then, you know, potentially uh, it's hard to say without the actual months there. But the point is you see the spike and then you see what happened with uh, CPI as well. And so we, you know, as the petroleum reserves began to be released, we saw a, a net positive impact on, on CPI. And so if we see uh, a massive spike in energy prices domestically here, you could obviously see a, a negative impact on uh, the CPI, meaning that inflation could potentially go higher. And so those are all, th those are all things that are, are obviously tied into one another uh, and a potential negative for the United States and, it's, and, you know, and, and really the Fed and its war against inflation, meaning that the Fed funds rates would continue to stay higher for longer if it's now also fighting a new, you know, a newish boogeyman, which is in, uh, energy prices, which had pretty much been quelled. Like prices of the pump had come down drastically, um, and so that's a major, major factor when we're looking at the, you know, the impacts of CPI. I would take that a step further and say, fine, the prices of the pump probably only dictate a small percentage of what makes up CPI in terms of like going up or down. But what about the prices of transporting goods? What about the prices of getting on an airplane? What about the prices of getting, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, lumber is needed from, you know, a forest on the West Coast to somewhere in Florida, all via diesel fuel shipping all across the United States. And so that is where things start to get very, very interesting uh, as as these oil price impacts is, impacts are felt. Yeah, for sure, man. Oil is used as like a what do they call it? Like a primary input for like almost everything we produce, like your clothes. Right. my glasses plastic any plastics any rubber so yeah it, it's huge but my thing is here's my take on it bro is it, i think if pain starts if, if there's enough pain right it's like how how tough is is the executive on on blocking uh fracking because it, it's like you have a solution like how long can you resist the morphine needle if it hurts fracking, that bad fracking is natural gas though dude like no we it's need both dude it's both. Google it right now. Google that shit. Google it right now. Right. I, I do find this to be like very, very did. interesting, though, because like we've got. All right. So you've got Powell using what tools he has at his disposal. We've clearly got the U.S. economy and the banking system at a breaking point. 
But the only silver lining is that inflation is coming down. So Powell supposedly has a little bit of breathing room in that regards and that, okay, maybe they're doing their job. They're still having this 2% target on inflation. It's very curious to me that at the moment that we need this the most, we need energy prices to stay down to tame inflation. They tighten the noose. And at the same time are actively publicly meeting with countries that are unfriendly to the United States. And, And to be perfectly honest, like, it was not without provocation. Like, I mean, I hate to continue to be the conspiracy theorist, but like, if you go back and you spell this out, it's almost like, uh, what's that? A series of unfortunate events, except, except they just did them all. They were like, Lemony, what are the absolute worst fucking things we can do? And here, and we're just going to go do them all. Lemony Snickets. A series Lemony Snicket. Yeah. Lemony yeah. So, so I, I mean, I, I would, I would take this, uh, even in another step forward and I have to pull up the screen. So while I do that, bear with me um but so basically where i want to take this was uh can anybody pull up the latest ppi numbers because they came down um uh, let me see if i can find what they were so basically you know we've said on this show before that you know cpi is a massively important number core inflation is a massively important number but generally what you see first is a decrease in in ppi which is uh um find it uh so so basically we see a decrease in the producer price index and why do we see that because things are cheaper to produce and when that happens then that cost is then passed along to the average you know me you and the other folks that are watching this show because to produce goods is now cheaper which means cost of goods can then thus be cheaper and so my fear is that as you know we saw really strong numbers in the ppi even stronger than we did in cpi in terms of you know positive the, uh, the, yeah, that's what I was going to pull up. Uh, but basically, this is my fear. So the graph shows a strong positive relationship between oil prices and PPI. That is, higher oil prices are associated with higher prices uh, and vice versa, uh, producer prices and vice versa. Specifically, the correlation between oil prices and PPI is 0.71. So basically, um, if this is a big catalyst to driving up energy costs in the United States, then we're going to see a negative impact on PPI, which, you know, which in later quarters means uh, worse CPI. And so mm-hmm. all interconnected, um, all something that is uh, a big problem. And, and, and it's not as easy as just flipping a switch. Like when we were drilling in Alaska, that's because we were giving out land grants that said, hey, you have the ability to drill here. And that, you know, when we give out those grants, it means that people will bring employees, they will open up the necessary machinery that is required to drill for oil. And, and then they, you know, and then boom, the spigot turns on. That's not a spigot that you just flip. That's not a light switch. When when we removed those permits, when we got rid of that the pipeline in Alaska, all the oil companies said, well, great, we don't want to be there anymore. Thus, we don't need employees there. We're not going to want machinery there. So this isn't something you just turn around tomorrow and say, hey, you know, we're, we're now facing higher oil prices. Let's turn Alaska back on. Uh, let's give those permits back out. That is a process. That's going to take months, if, if that's even something we're willing to do. Uh, given the energy stance of the you know the current administration, and so yes, this all of this bows poorly to what the Fed is ultimately trying to f- and, uh, fight in, in PPI, CPI, and core inflation. And the, here's the good news, I guess, if there is any good news, and and granted, most of this is probably applicable to like a normal whatever that may be economic situation, or when we're not in like this weird economic time. But uh, so 
Ah, I can't even read it. It's too much. I'm ADDing. But so the, the price of oil has an inverse relationship generally with the US dollar. And we know that risk on assets generally have the same type of relationship, right? And so it may be the bearish kick that we need to get the Dixie back into that like risk on range. Maybe, maybe. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, this show, like I've said it before, I'll say it again. We're basically just sitting around circle jerking on what the future is going to look like. But, you know, we're kind of learning as we go along with this stuff. But that's like the the silver lining scenario here. But we're in a weird time. Uh, we're in a time when, you know, the economy is is fragile. Uh, a lot of banks are probably insolvent. There's a 0% <laughs> reserve rate from the Fed on fractional reserve banking. Like anything could happen. Uh, so... Who the hell knows, man? Yeah, it probably is every crypto show. We're just the only ones that like come out and tell you that that's what we're doing. So, so, so basically, the effect that we're expecting this to have on crypto is positive. It's going to drive the value of the US dollar down, and then we're going to get more risk on. Well, that's the, traditionally oil going up meant dollar went down, right? That's they have an inverse relationship. Yeah, they do. Unless John Steps is right and they want higher inflation so they can keep rates higher. I think I think statistic? I think China and Russia and possibly Saudi Arabia and those countries probably do want higher inflation, right? Mm -hmm. Because we're at a breaking point. Like, what if they like what if inflation was the talking point? Like, screw everything else, which is kind of what Powell has always said. Uh, mm -hmm. and we're just going to keep on raising. It's like break, break, break. Well, what happens when you keep breaking shit? You got to turn the printer on. And what happens mm. when you turn the printer on? You increase inflation, you devalue the dollar, you know? Uh, and so if you, if you want to weaken a country, do it from the inside. So anyhow, we, we've spent a lot of time on this topic. I mean, I think that, but, but Austin is right. Like if, if there's a silver lining here that's positive for crypto or positive for risk on assets, it's, it, it really is, a, you know, high and rising oil prices contribute to the decline of the dollar. Um, Basically, you know, we're like with with what all the BRICS nations are doing, which is trying to trade, you know, in their own currency. The petrodollar still still reigns supreme, regardless of mm -hmm. what they're trying to pull off. It's going to take time to to migrate to a system like that. So, basically, yeah. you know, in the increasing cost of oil imports widens the United States trade deficit, and so um, and so basically, you know, that that means that the dollar is is going to decline. Uh, and so it's, it could be a net positive for risk on assets if we see the Dixie drop as a result of this. So I think if there's any silver lining that's positive in all this, it's that. Here, here. Let's let's go to something right on a little bit more lighthearted. I, the Arbitrum discussion isn't really lighthearted, but videos from Gabriel are always lighthearted. So I'll set the stage real quick. So unless you were living under a rock, you know that Arbitrum committed a bit of a, a snafu over the weekend mm -hmm. and that they put the very first proposal vote up to the Dow and it was for 750 million Arbitrum tokens to be sent to the Dow or excuse me, sent to the foundation so that they can, you know, liquidate some for operating expenses so they can give some to sophisticated uh, market makers, things of that nature. It was overwhelmingly voted against by the community like 75% to 25%. Yeah, 80, 84. 
84. And, and then after that happened, they came back and said, oopsie, that wasn't a real vote. Uh, in <laughs> fact, we already sold like $10 million worth on market and sent 50 million Arbitrum tokens to various people. And everyone lost their fucking minds. Uh, it was a huge thing. And it is perfectly summed up in this video by our old friend, Gabriel Haynes. So I'm going to play this real quick for you guys, just because it's so, so funny. Listen, guys, we're only going to take a small portion of our token holdings. It's only a billion dollars. We're going to take a billion, it's a small billion, and we're going to use it for operations. What kind of operations? I'm not going to tell you right now, but don't worry. It's for good operations, the operations that need to keep us operational. We'll take those coins. And we'll sell them, but don't worry, don't worry. We're gonna put it up for a vote, but don't worry. We already sell the coins, don't worry. The vote—it makes no difference, but shh, it's okay. That's why we released a token for voting. So now you get to vote either way. <laughs> so thanks again, everyone, for being our exit liquidity. <laughs> we at the Arbitrum Foundation have weak paper hands, and we dump our token first before anyone else. So GM and on, and I hope you enjoyed your free internet ARB airdrop. Dude, this guy's a legend, bro. All right, so a lot went on, and they, they came back later and tried to, like, backtrack that not really backtrack it but like try to try to polish this turd uh and it was really unpolishable and i think a big problem that they had if you guys remember when they were doing their airdrop and we were reading through the articles and like they had this dow structure that was so important and, and to the to the point that it was like a vote is passed and the code executes it right like that sort of a dow thing now they're located in the united states and obviously with the weird uh, regulatory environment that we have right now, decentralization is something that they are definitely going to want to be able to prove, to my understanding. Now, again, just pontificating here. So this was a really interesting thing and in that they came right in. They said, all of these tokens wield governance power. Nope, oh, but you didn't vote in the way that we liked it. And so fuck your tokens. Uh, we're just going to do what we want, right? So it was a really interesting thing. So I'll kick it over to you guys. Dude, I think uh, I think it's really sick what they did. Sick, gnarly, really cool, because <laughs> uh, it's a complete and told to me PR failure. Like it just seems like a massive communication failure. Like why wouldn't they just communicate this beforehand? Like why did you do a fake vote? You could have just been like, we're gonna do this allocation for this reason before anything. Just say it at the right. beginning. We need money to operate. People understand that. Why would you do a vote? <laughs> this was such a huge amount anything. of it was a bit. They need a billion dollars. A, yeah, a so, billion. Yeah, they gotta have the they gotta have the fucking economy a big of like a small Latin American country <laughs> in order to run. Yeah, definitely. Uh, a couple of things from my vantage point. Um, one, this vote was not. It was. It wasn't a vote. I mean, this was. I guess this is one of the unfortunate downfalls of calling yourself a DAO. Is like. This this was a uh, this was this is more of a formality than it was a vote because this had been just like in in terms of like having marketing versus PR an airdrop is amazing marketing public relations is how you respond to the crappy things that you do in marketing when things go awry and so mm -hmm. this 
this decision was was it was already predetermined. Uh, and so this was a formality. Uh, and and basically, um, there's a uh, um, one one of the folks from one of the employees from Arbitrum, Patrick McCory, says we believe that a lot of negative sentiment around AIP one was driven by confusion around the notion that AIP one being a ratification and not a request. Uh, there's a chicken and egg issue that needs to be solved when decentralizing network. And the point of AIP one was to inform the community of all decisions that were made in advance. So again, this was a formality. This was not a, this was not a governance proposal decision. And so I go immediately to the fact of why was this a formality? Like, why was this already predetermined? And the only thing that I can really come up with is that, as you said, Austin, Arbitrum being a U.S. entity, uh, the Arbitrum Foundation, on the, on the other hand, is, an, is a Cayman Island formed foundation which serves the Arbitrum DAO community and is governed by it to foster the development and growth of the Arbitrum ecosystem. So if you are going to put tokens somewhere and it's not you know, within the Arbitrum, uh, not, you know, not in its current standing with uh, the Arbitrum Foundation, where are you going to put them? Probably with the Cayman Islands Foundation. And so like, there's, I think there's more to like the, the underlying story that we don't really get. But to me, having a foundation that's, got, you know, that's based in the Cayman Islands to make strategic decisions in terms of grants, in terms of partnerships and ways to utilize the ARB token is kind of a must. Because you're not going to have, you know, you're going to have a completely different regulatory framework in the Cayman Islands than you would here. I just don't think that that was messaged in any way, shape, or form prior to now. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's all the right. Problem. The, Here's the deal, the, though. You register, sense. you register your company in the Cayman Islands, right? <laughs> sure. All yeah. right. Cool. Cool. I, I live in Orlando, Florida. Right. I have I have a company located in the Bahamas. Right. Mm -hmm. If I if I say, oh, my company in the Bahamas made it made the decision, but I'm sitting in Orlando, Florida. Oh, and by the way, we're talking about billions of dollars. What do you think old cool sunglasses Gary Gensler is going to say about that shit? You think he's just going to show up and go, oh, fuck, you paid the yeah. $200 to get it registered to Caymans? We're cool, man. I'll, I'll go bother somebody else. Right. Yeah. That, ain't, that ain't how this is going to work, dude. Yeah. In yeah, my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I got to take a leak. I'll be right back. I remember consulting with an attorney uh, early on about like how safe it is to, sh to structure offshore. And he was saying that that's pretty much like nothing. It does really nothing to protect you. Like if they really want to get you, they're going to get you. Yeah. Uh, in the Cayman Islands, like there's treaties and the like that they can access it. It's not like fucking a super no, secret. It's certainly, not, it's certainly not a, uh, a, a, you know, like as we saw with, with, with FTX being located in the Bahamas, like if things really go down or they want a reason to, to you know, extradite and or subpoena, uh, a foreign government or a foreign person who's you know under investigation. Obviously, there's numerous and many ways that they will do that. I mean, I think that really most of the scrutiny of this really came from the allocation of 750 million ARB tokens uh, that the Arb Arbitrum Foundation used for making grants, reimbursing service providers, and covering its administrative and operational costs, which is a completely opaque you know, like there is no, like there's, it's not like this was line itemed out and this is a P and L mm. and you can see a budget by budget proposal as to where these tokens are going. And so yeah. that, that in and of itself is, is a major problem in terms of like, you know, just the community, like, look at the end of the day, like if you want a functioning DAO, it's got to run on trust much like a fiat dollar or a decentralized, you know, whatever protocol, anything it's got to run on trust. And I think that this was a big blow of, you know, to the trust of of what the uh of what the arbitrum foundation is trying to do with an arbitrum dow 
Um, and so, yeah, so it was it was a, a massive PR blunder, um, which has been spun out of a great, uh, honestly, a really, really great marketing execution, in my opinion. Um, but the trust is now lost. And so how do you how do you regain that? Um, and, and most of the Ethereum layer twos and particularly, you know, like look at the way that optimism has been doing things. They've really like they've, they've set their line in the sand that we're 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 going to do our DAOs differently we're going to have governors of different you know different decision making entities our entire framework of a DAO is built on trust and to to you know to eliminate that trust i think um is 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 a massive problem moving forward and you see it reflected in the price of, of arbitrum over the weekend but that's actually the opposite of what a DAO is supposed to do it's supposed to remove the need to be built on trust. It's supposed to be decentralized to the degree that you have enough players involved that you don't have to trust any one player. True. It's decentralized. And you know what? Fucking none of them are. Like, yeah. none of them are. Like, that's call it what it is. I think like DAOs, like people always say like DAOs are like underdeveloped. Like people don't, like people are still trying to figure out how to do a DAO. But when I think of like a DAO, I mean, how different is it really than like a corporate structure right like what you're trying to do like you just let shareholders vote on everything right like everyone that has a token is essentially a shareholder because they have a staked interest so why can't they just like there's so many problems with this like like clay saying communicating beforehand right they, they talk about their constitution right and like they have a plan why couldn't they have just voted on each little part of the plan if it's truly decentralized that's how it would work right I would submit a proposal to you like this is how I want to spend our money. How do you want me to? This is cool. Yeah, but they would have been screwing themselves. Why didn't they just they should have just had all this up front. Here's what we need to spend it on. Here's a cost breakdown. Here's what we're doing. You're so, not a DAO yet. So screw you guys. We're just going to take this money. And now you're a DAO. Poof. Now you're yeah. a DAO. And Andre, Andre had a great, interesting take on this, you know, because yeah. DAOs were like the hot word for mm -hmm. a little while here. And this person, Tracy. Wang, I'll giggle privately later about her name, uh, says, do you think Dow governance is doomed? Hold on. I got to pull it up so I can read it. Dow governance is doomed for hopeless theater, or is there a yet to be invented decentralized governance structure that will work? And Andre said, synthetics had perfected it, which to be fair is normal corporate governance, right? Large shareholders form a board, appoint directors, appoint executives, appoint managers. Only in crypto do we try and reinvent everything always. And so I, I think that's kind of a Point yeah, so point, you know, I think he's right. Like the the there is like a new thing that crypto can maybe bring to how governance is run, but that doesn't mean like every like the problems that DAOs have are like the problems that any organization of humans has had for like fucking a million years. Like these is a very well trod ground on like how to delegate authority, how to ensure trust between authorities. And all that so it's kind of goofy as fuck dude that people are still struggling to work out like the basic republican structure of like you appoint someone a specialist and that person appoints a specialist and they appoint a specialist um but yeah i mean i don't think it, I, for my what i've seen though it hasn't had like people talk about it has this big impact on arbitrum's price but like wasn't it already like tanking hard was it huge. already it, dude arbitrum the network is amazing uh, mm -hmm. it's very, very fast. Now the, the, what is it? The prover or the, what the hell do they call it? The sequencer, the sequencer is, is centralized. And that was one thing that they're, they're saying is, you know, within a year or so we'll have this whole deal mm -hmm. decentralized. Right. But I think, you know, 
people are talking about how well Beats has done, um, like decentralized governance. The big difference in the Beats team and most other teams in this industry, in my experience, is they operate with a degree of humility. They are actually a team that believes in hearing your voice and they don't always believe that they know what's best they're willing to listen to you there's it takes a lot of humility to create something put your lifeblood into it and then be willing to listen to your community that's something that that they actually will do just just based on the type of people that they are you know and that's not something you're going to find a lot of in crypto so <clears throat> i think to to put a cap on this section they did walk it back like like after all the the blowback from everything um <clears throat> they have walked it back and said aip1 is too large and covers too many topics as we said uh, we will follow the dow's advice and split the aip into parts this will allow the community to discuss and vote on different subsections the 750 million uh 7.5 percent of the arb supply being sent to the arb foundation this will be voted on in its own aip we're working on options to add more accountability, for example, a four-year vesting period. Furthermore, tokens held by the foundation cannot, cannot be used to vote. Um, oh. It does not discuss transparency over how the funds was, was spent, which is exactly like I said. There, there, is, no, uh, you know, there is no line item budgeting uh, across this proposal. It sounds like maybe they'll fix that. The special grants program is vague, lacks DAO involvement. We'll rena rename it the Ecosystem Development Fund and provide context. So really, like, this was okay. probably probably the cart before the horse i mean this is you know them them rolling out this token uh, i mean i think that you know beats has had a long time and done a great job of of analyzing DAOs to your point with humility but also from a perspective of like what works and what is broken and when you roll out a brand new token it's all fun and games in terms of the airdrop and, and the excitement but you know the amount of thought and, and the amount of transparency that goes into being a DAO is is very very high and so it mm -hmm. looks like things are are um, you know being rolled back and uh, and, and you know going to be going to be changed. So the objective the objective in setting up the Arbitrum DAO was to lead by example to create the most decentralized roll up. And despite this blunder of communication, i.e. PR, we will continue mm -hmm. to aggressively pursue this goal. To our knowledge, Arbitrum is the only L2 where token holders can simultaneously control upgrade upgradeability via on-chain executable governance, appoint and remove remove foundation directors and directly control on-chain treasury. So to me, it seems like uh, they've realized their mistakes and they are going to roll this back and break it out into subsections, which is the right thing to do. Uh, and so maybe we will see a, you know, a, a different direction taken here. Final thought on this real quick is that, so for anyone that doesn't realize this, moving to a DAO is a massive pain in the ass. It basically 10Xs your work as a founding team, right? It makes everything everything so much more extremely complicated and it's done for one reason it is a legal strategy it is not done 99 times out of 100 because they believe so strongly in decentralization it's not done because they want to give you a vote as to how they run their company it's done as a legal strategy at the end of the day so i'm not personally surprised that the values of a quote-unquote dao were not upheld by the top of this company, they're the ones that put in all the work. They're the ones that built the structure. They're the ones that were operating and, and are the ones that have to answer to their creditors and bills and things of that nature. So that part doesn't surprise me. They just handled it shitty. That's just yeah. the bottom line. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and I'm sure that in due time, whatever, you know, whatever price 
uh, impact has been seen on our return will will be reversed. I mean, it's this is these are these seem to be common mistakes of L1s or L1s, L2s. Basically, let me rephrase that: common mistakes of foundations who run blockchains, uh, <clears throat> and it's happened, you know, for a long time. And and we saw we saw like you know even Phantom with with some of the decisions they made as a foundation have since been rectified, changed, you know, eradicated and, and fixed. And so yeah, I but expect- they they pulled no bunches. They weren't going, yeah. hey, you know, here's a vote. Like they had unilateral control and they could make those decisions, right? Had they come out and said, well, you know, really we're decentralized and you guys have all the votes, and so can we loan this money to Harry this week? Right. And everyone said no, and they still did it. That's a whole other story, dude. You know what I mean? Yeah. So do you guys think that this is, I know we're putting a cap on this and tying it off and all that, but do you guys think this is negatively, like, do you think this is creating an opportunity for other L2s that are going to be launching soon? Like all these ZK ones? I think this goes away. I think people care about how much yield is on chain. How fast can I transact? How smooth is the experience? And can I get my money off of that chain? And guess what? Arbitrum checks the boxes. So regardless of what the Dow did, right? I think it's it's probably going to present a buying opportunity because they're going to walk it back turbo and they're going to do whatever they got to do to maintain these billions of dollars market cap that they have going on. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, now I'm not buying the ARB token, but in my opinion, opportunity, it's not going to hurt them. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, they got yeah. I like from the data I've seen, like they still got three percent of total value locked up from like uh one point nine percent, like at the beginning of the year. So it doesn't le- seem like any value has really fled the system as a result. Yeah, they don't care. People don't give a shit. Honestly, yeah, people just care about making money, dude. It's a lot of posturing, dude. But at, yeah, that's what most people are here for that All reason. About making money. Now, speaking of that, so there were some interesting developments going on that Clay has information on as our final topic here. So oh, yeah. Maine was doing some really interesting stuff. Wyoming has has you know they they were the first to say DAOs are recognized as a legal structure. So that was a a big move for Wyoming. But Maine is doing some things really against what it appears the federal government is trying to do when it comes to crypto. Can you, uh, can you educate yeah. us a little bit on this? Yeah, of course. It, so, we're, you know, we're seeing some really interesting things happen. Like as we all criticize the, um, um, you know, enforcement without, you know, any type of regulatory, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, regulation through enforcement. Thank you. Regulation through enforcement. So as this continues to be the common theme of the United States government, uh, we've seen this in other industries. Like we've seen regulation through enforcement. We've seen lack of clarity uh, in terms of you know how states should operate independently of the federal government, and and really like you know federal laws are applicable in the same way across all state borders, which is what what it really comes down to. But under the Constitution, states are permitted to create you know implement and enforce their own laws in addition to the federal laws, uh, and and really like. You know, this is because pretty much every United, you know, every state in in this, you know, in in the United States is is its own sovereign entity entity. So like it has its own right uh, to grant power and create laws and regulate those laws the way that it sees fit. So it's really Article Six of the Constitution uh, called the Supremacy Clause, and that's kind of where this comes from. And so what I'm what what I'm starting to see, and maybe we're all starting to see it, is that each state individually is starting to say, hmm, there's absolutely zero clarity from the U.S. government on how to 
like regulate crypto on how to treat crypto on on whether crypto should be legal illegal you know bitcoin mining it, like it runs the gauntlet really like you know bitcoin as a security cryptocurrency as a security bitcoin mining like all of this stuff right and so there's there's another place that we've seen this uh in history and that was also in cannabis and depending on which state if you're in the united states that you're watching from if you are a u.s citizen uh we see cannabis regulated completely differently uh across all these different state lines mm -hmm. and so i feel like we're starting to see the same thing uh in crypto which i think is a positive because if the u.s government is not going to give us um you know proper legislation on how cryptocurrency should be treated then states are going to have to step up and do it themselves uh, and we're starting to see that and so um you know basically in this article it, it details that 13 states and one territory have de decriminalized the use of cannabis additional 18 states and two territories have enacted laws to allow recreational use of marijuana so obviously a completely different topic um, but you know the, the point is that as states create their own laws and this has a rippling effect on on kind of what can happen within that state itself and the most powerful sentence i think in this article was uh you know conflict of law between the narrow federal landscape and the expansion of state cannabis laws has created numerous business law complications impacting uh, uh including the impacting on banking rules and regulations which is a massive one for us uh, and decisions uh, and decisions and lawyers and bankers must make without clear guidance and direction. So does it solve the problem? No. But does it give it a path forward for a particular state? Yes, potentially. Uh, and so, you know, go ahead, Austin. Well, I was just going to say, so what what is Maine doing specifically? When you were explaining this yeah, to me, yeah. you mentioned Caitlin and, and some other people. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I was, I was going to replay the, uh, the video of DeSantis with D CBDCs. Do you feel like that's unnecessary? Cause that was, that well, was the <clears throat> so here, here's really what I want to point out that I think is super important, right? If you look at Florida, you look at Wyoming, you look at Texas, what they all have in common is they always vote red, not, not always for Florida, but right now it's a red state. Not so with Maine. Yep. Maine is a decades long blue state. And that is encouraging to me. Yeah. So, I mean, I would I, I would actually like kind of contradict your statement and say that there's a lot of states, both red and blue, who have their, and I'll pull up some examples, who have their own um, approach, perspective, and are implementing laws that are unique to their state as it relates to cryptocurrency. So uh, over the weekend, um, Senator Eric Barkey uh, basically put out this proposal uh, for a public opinion that they're going to hold uh, on April 4th, which is tomorrow, uh, for the first ever public hearing on cryptocurrency in the Maine legislature. Um, and basically the bill is modeled after the law in Wyoming, advances digital pioneers, and you know yada, yada, yada. So, uh, and basically fin uh, authorize financial institutions in Maine to accept deposits of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin with 100% reserve requirements. And he's and basically they're bringing in experts to uh, to be part of this panel as to why Maine should do this. And so they've chosen as you know as as the main kind of headline expert, they've chosen uh, the the XRP attorney, um, who's uh, John Deaton, to come in and be sort of the headline you know person to talk on this panel about why Maine should adopt cryptocurrency. Obviously, he's majorly pro XRP as he's the one representing you know the the millions of, of holders of XRP in the SEC versus XRP case. 
And so, you know, he'll be the, the headliner of this uh, hearing tomorrow. Um, and so it's, it's, it is a blue state, yes, but they are trying to do their own pro-crypto, um, you know, lawmaking. And so if you, you know, if you remember the video of, of Governor DeSantis saying, we will never support CBDCs here in the state of Florida, like you're starting to see this take effect across many, many different uh, states in and of itself. Texas, uh, obviously a red state, introduces bill to, to boost local Bitcoin economy and protect the rights of, of individual BTC ownership. This actually goes further and, and, and talks about protecting the rights of, uh, of actually just cryptocurrency ownership in, ge in general. Uh, this right, the bill says, should also extend to digital possessions such as cryptocurrencies. No citizen in Texas shall be deprived of the right to own Bitcoin Yada yada yada. So there's there's obviously a bunch of different states, uh, you know, going after their own rules and regulation because of the uncertainty of the federal government. Um, and so, you know, which which other states have done have done it? Arizona, which is you know predominantly a, a blue state, so Bitcoin is legal tender. California, you know, wanted to make crypto payments uh, applicable for state services such as permits, DMV licenses, certificate uh, certificates, and state taxes. Um, Colorado, another blue state, um, basically hopes that they can make crypto payments uh, available for state taxes and fees. Um, Wyoming, which we've already discussed, we know what they did in terms of making DAOs legal entities. So there's a lot of states, you know, not just red or blue, you know, or both red and blue. The blue are saying, ones are taking your money. They're saying, hey, this is another form of money. Yeah. We want as much as we can get in and we're going to let you pay us in this one. But they're not protecting the rights. All right. of Bitcoin holders. Maine is trying to do something different. That's like California and Colorado were like, yeah, you could pay us in this shit if you want. Like we'll yeah. send it to Coinbase just like the government did and get our dollars out. But like Maine did something different and they tapped on it. How, how did Caitlin Long play a role in this? You mentioned her earlier. She, so, I mean, really she was, she was the, she was the proponent of Wyoming. Like she basically, she was the John Deaton of the Wyoming you know, kind of like creation of the legislation in, in Wyoming. Okay. So the same way they're bringing in John Deaton to be sort of the resident expert about cryptocurrencies and, and why Maine should adopt. Kaylin Long was was that of, of the, the Wyoming bill and legislation creation. So, um, you know, I think from a from a from a macro perspective of cryptocurrency, this is a net positive for all of us who are you know not that you know, I don't know how many of us are going to move to Maine regardless of what they do, but but it's a net positive to see that much like I think, you know, many of us would agree that crypto or that, that marijuana should probably be legal across all states, depending on your stance, you know, each state individually has made that decision. We may be headed that direction when it comes to cryptocurrency. Um, and so that's something that to absolutely, you know, we need to keep an eye on. And, you know, and if the federal government is not going to do anything to help you know, regulate the space, maybe the states will. And so we're starting to see more and more, indication of that being the case and to me i find that to be a really big positive uh for the space overall because we need someone to step in and and, and take charge and of course you know federal law still reigns supreme but like this is a step in the right direction i don't know how you guys feel here yeah i mean i think it's a pretty nice thing i think it's nice gives me a little hope but i i think uh immediately my contrarian nature says that uh one marijuana and cryptocurrencies are extremely different like theoretically you could have marijuana production inside your state never ship it out of the state and just have a local industry right and then that's untouchable by the well not untouchable but 
according to the constitution, the, the state, the government can't do any, the federal government can't really do anything about it. It's when things go interstate, right? Like if I'm shipping from Florida to Georgia, that's when it becomes a federal concern because federal, the federal government manages interstate uh, commerce and by their nature, cryptocurrencies are borderless, right? Like I can transact with anyone at any time in any state. So that's kind of spooky if you think like this could easily just become an issue in Congress eventually where they just say, well, this is completely illegal, especially. And if you consider the coinage act, if, if they if if it ever takes the position that these are actually currencies, then Congress has the right to say we control coinage. We get to say what is coinage like each mm. state doesn't get to say what's coinage. or the restrict act. If I don't think that's going to go through, it has gotten such huge backlash. But like the restrict act basically gives the executive power unchecked ability to determine what digital landscape is quote unquote a foreign adversary right if mm -hmm. they say that well you know bitcoin is very friendly to russia and china we now consider it to be a foreign adversary we are going to restrict it at the mm -hmm. federal level and put you you know so, so the act says we'll put you in prison if you if you circumvent it so yeah. anyhow that's a lot I of mean, good stuff I, real I, quick though i uh, sorry i just want to say that uh the hopium part of it still is though like like marijuana it seems like the big thing is that congress is hopelessly jammed up these fuckers can't come to a conclusion thing <laughs> at any point so their ability to actually change these things is probably really tied especially when you see the distinction between all these states and if you think that the representatives from these states are supposed to come to come some kind of conclusion together it it seems kind of silly <laughs> Like, uh, they can't even agree, like, on whether or not you're allowed to smoke a little kush, dude. How are they going to agree on smoke these intangible kush, baby? But I, so, the I guess the, the counter argument I would put on that is like, as more and more states move to in 2014 and 2018, there was something called the Farm Bill that was passed, and, and effectively, uh, it, it changed the legal classification of cannabis, um, and removed hemp from a Schedule One, like, controlled substance act. And the reason that happened is because that so many states kind of banded and united on the same front against the federal government's you know, stance on, on cannabis that it sort of prompted action from the federal government. And so, you know, ultimately what I'm saying is if we can continue to see states step in and create their own you know, legislation around crypto, it, it can prompt change at a federal level if there's a way the federal government can make money off of it. And so really that's what it was all about, right? And so, you know, in 2021, uh, Senator, Bo Senator Schumer and Senator Booker uh, removed cannabis from the Controlled Substance Act, uh, you know, basically as a result of all of these states um, passing their own legislation. But really, the, the key came down, to the, came down to this. So the Controlled Substance Act, the draft would impose a federal exercise tax on, tax on cannabis products. Importantly, draft also contains a number of decriminalization provisions that would allow state compliant marijuana businesses who had access to financial services such as bank accounts and loans. And so where I'm going, you know, basically what I'm saying is as the federal government found ways to make money off this stuff, they started to back off their stance of like a national ban against cannabis. Now to say that that would be the same in crypto is, is drawing very, very, yeah. very thinly dotted lines yeah. of parallels but that yeah. is that is the way that it that it panned out there because so they're they're framing this up as a threat to the national currency yeah. so like even if they do make money which clearly they are going to make money off of federal taxes right even if they get that 
it's still what they're saying is it's a threat to the national currency because it takes yeah. dollars out of the U.S. banking system, which is fragile as shit right now. Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm just trying to draw you know, vaguely dotted lines of opium that that if our states continue to <laughs> you know, con yeah, continue to uh, to ban you know either together or separately uh in in terms of passing crypto regula regulation that makes sense for their state you know it can it can at times force the hand of the federal government because we have representatives in each of these states in in, in congress and senate who are voted in by us and so you know my my hope is that you know from things like the constitution and like having actual representation from our leaders in congress or senate that something positive could come from each state having its own stance on this industry we need here, to decentralize here. the U.S. government, bro. We need it. We do need it. It's CBDC, but it's a government's token. It's use. It's a worthless governance token. It could just be the Arbitrum token, bro. Just get the Arbitrum <laughs> Foundation to rewrite government government yeah. uh, infrastructure, and we they've be got, to go. They've been battle tested. All right, we're over time, boys. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Hey, for anyone that's been right. watching this show, do me a favor, like the video, subscribe to the channel. We appreciate you tuning in. Nick at the helm. Thanks for always being here, buddy. I appreciate you, man. All of you guys, profit loser, John Doe, Fallout Zone, psychopath, especially. Thanks for tuning in. And we're gonna get Thank the hell out of here. We'll see y'all tomorrow. Oh, real, real quick before we go, before we go, Mikey, don't hit that button yet. So you guys know I, my my little boy was born about a month ago or so, and he's been he came a little bit early, so he's been in the hospital. I think, fingers crossed, he's gonna be coming home next week. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. So when he comes home. I'm out for a while, man. So you get Clay, the Clay and Corval rocking it out with you. So you disappear. It's not because I don't love you. It's just because I got to go. All right. Now let's get the hell out of here, Mikey. Take us home, brother.